turn to the book of Romans. Book of Romans. Uh, a couple quick things. So um, don't forget, right after the service, we have a potluck in our annual business meeting. Everybody's invited to come. If you didn't bring food, that's totally fine. There's always way more left over. So that's right after the service. And so right when we're done, Jim will come up and give us instructions for how we can quickly convert this room into um, a, a uh, eatery. What do you call that? Uh, cafeteria, that kind of thing. So he'll do that. Um, I also just heard this. I'm personally very thankful for uh, that the Amboy Hardware Store had gone out of business closed down and now it's reopening this Saturday. They have their brand new opening. So they basically, they're like serving hot dogs and whatnot. So that's at nine o'clock this Saturday morning. And I don't know, I think the fact that we're getting a hardware store in town is pretty awesome. So I'll just make quick mention of that. So anyway, uh, we're in the book of Romans. And one of the main reasons we're doing that is because we're taking a really, um, a really intense look this year at discipleship. And the reason we're doing that is because we are going into a building program. And as we move into this building program and get further into it, it's very easy to get caught up on a building, on a facility, and, and lose, lose sight of why we're really here. And we're really here to, to love one another, to, to, to love this town, and to love God. And that's why our purpose and mission is to reach with the gospel those who are near to us but far from, from Jesus. So uh, we're focusing on discipleship this year for the, 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 really the clear purpose that we don't want to get, we don't want to get distracted um, in our mission for growing God's church while we, we work on a, a building facility coming up. So, so anyway, Romans, we're, we're in chapter one still, and someone said to me right before the service, are you going to cover more than one word this week? And yes, we're covering more than one word this week. Um, so with that, I wanted to say that... Um, I don't know, Harvard Law School, their first hundred years of existence in the first year, first year law students, they were, they were required in their course curriculum to go through the book of Romans. And not for theological purposes, but for the purpose of building a case. Because this secular institution recognized that the Apostle Paul would explain why he believed his theory could solve everyone's problem. Now, his theory, of course, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when you look at it from an outside, non-theological perspective, it's a, it's, a great, it's a great book because what he does in that is he raises all kinds of, of objections to the gospel, and then he answers those objections. He actually kind of like takes the, the, the feet out of the critic because he acknowledges their struggle with the gospel of Jesus, and then he, he gives the antidote to how he can properly address it. And so he also pulls on common experiences that all people have as they go through, as they go through life, and he, he shows how the gospel addresses that. And specifically, he's kind of asking one major question. Why can only, and the key word there is only, the gospel of Jesus fix us? Why can only the gospel of Jesus fix us? So that's kind of the big question that gets asked as we go through the book of Romans. And he's going to dissect all kind of different facets in, of, of culture and facet, facets of religion and, and, and non-religion, irreligious kind of things. And so, so anyway, um, the reason he does this is because a lot of times we can say, why is it only the gospel that can fix us? Well, a lot of people want to say, well, 
Why, why can't um, just a little bit of religion do the trick to fix my problem? Or, or why can't God just give us a good talking to? Why can't he just kind of like, he had this whole Old Testament set of rules. Why can't God just like reinstitute and give us a refresher course on these old rules and, 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 and fix us that way? Uh, other people, they might um, have a hard time because they, they could say, why would the Bible, you know, why would the Bible command that all people come to know Jesus when not all people can? There's problems with what about the, the lost tribes in, in, in Africa that have never heard the good news of Jesus? What about them? And so Paul addresses those kinds, of, those kinds of arguments as he addresses this question, why it is that only the gospel can fix fix us. And so let me pray, and then we're going to jump right into Romans chapter 1. Lord, thank you so much for this morning, and Lord, just being able to be here, to have breath, and to have opportunities to to look one another in the eyes, uh, opportunities to hug, and opportunities to, to sing to you worship and to bring your name glory. Uh, we know that that's a gift. That's a gift um, that you've given to us, and we thank you for that. Father, I do ask that you would meet every single one of us that's here this morning. We know that no one's here by accident. And so, Father, I just would pray that you would do only what you can do, and that's change hearts and minds. And, and Lord, I ask that you would use me in the process of being a vessel for that change. And we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 1. We're going to start, um, I'll tell you what, I'm going to pick it up in verse 16, even though the text on the screen is only going to show verse 18. In verse 16 of chapter 1, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now jumping into what we covered last week. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what could be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse for although they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. We'll stop there for this morning. One of the things I really am excited about covering these verses, especially through next week, is it really boils down and it gets down to um, the the basic Christian worldview. And one of the reasons I think it's so important for us to spend some time here is because this passage is probably one of, if not the most, I'll say it like this, repulsive passages to non-Christian people. They read passages like this and the rest of through verse 32, and they'll say, that's why I'm not going to go to a church. That's why I'm not going to believe what those Christians believe. Now, on the flip side of that, you have Christian people, and they look at a verse like this, and I would say oftentimes it's maybe not misinterpreted, but it's grossly misapplied. And this passage is one that Christians can use 
as a weapon against the big, bad, mean world that is encroaching on their comforts. And, and so it's really an important passage, and that's what God's Word does, right? It, 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 it humbles the, the lofty, and it encourages the humble. And, and so we all kind of find ourselves kind of maybe vacillating between those two things throughout throughout our lives. But here we go. Let's kind of just jump right in, look at a few of these verses. We're going to go back to verse, verse 18, even though we covered it last week, to just do a bit of review. It says that for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and an unrighteousness of men. Now remember, godlessness, godlessness is a break in the, the relationship between humankind and God. It's a break between the vertical relationship that we have. That's what godlessness means. It means that we have a wrong attitude, a corrupt viewpoint and perspective of who God is and, and how, our, how we're to relate with him. Unrighteousness, on the other hand, is, is a brokenness on the horizontal level, the brokenness in relationships with one another. So instead of being loving and humble and kind, mankind instead can be self-centered, proud, manipulating. So that's what godlessness and unrighteousness mean. And then where we're going to focus today is this next portion here. It says, who by their unrighteousness suppress, suppress the truth. I gave a few examples as a means of foreshadowing this week, last week, but really to suppress the truth. Basically, suppression, we need to understand, is not the same thing as ignorance. It's not that people don't know the truth, according to scripture. It's that they suppress the truth. It's like they take a beach ball, you know, and you jump in the pool and you're on the beach ball and you're trying to push the beach ball down into the water. You're suppressing it. You're holding it. It's wanting out. It's, it's fighting its way out. That's kind of the picture, but we don't want it to come out. It's what Paul is saying at this point. We don't want it to come out. We're, we're suppressing that truth. Now, uh, there's a pastor and writer, his name's Tim Keller, and he says what's going on here is that when it comes to the knowledge of God, we know, but sometimes we don't know because we don't want to know. We know the truth, but we don't know the truth because we don't want to know the truth. I'll say that one more time because we're going to re review it. We know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. So let me give you an example to kind of help solidify this. At the end of World War II, uh, when the first concentration camp was, was, was taken down by, by uh, American allies, they, they come in, the allies come in, it's this little town, I've been practicing this for a week, it's Ordorf, Germany, it's in Germany. And the, the Nazis tried to, to get rid of any evidence of this concentration camp, but the allied forces, because... They're awesome, they get in there quickly, and when they come in, they're horrified by what they see. They just see hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of dead Jews piled all over the place, just outside this town. So they, they call on their general, General Patton, and General Patton shows up the next day. First thing he does when he comes and sees this is he throws up, physically gets ill, and that's from a general who's been through a lot of wars, and he, he gets physically ill. Now, he's, the next thing he does is he goes right to the town and goes to the mayor of the town, and he, he asks the mayor point blank, did you know what was going on in that concentration camp? And the mayor looked him in the eye, and he said, I did not know. 
So Patton went to the mayor, got the mayor, got the mayor's wife, and got every able-bodied townsperson from that town to go out and, and hand dig, because it's before Kubota and Caterpillar, hand dig every grave and give a proper burial and memorial to every one of those, those people. Shortly after this time, General Patton, I don't know if he had moved on or not, it was a little unclear, but General Patton got word that that mayor and his wife hung themselves. And in their suicide note, they, they said this, we didn't know, but we knew. They'd never seen it with their own eyes. They hadn't seen it, but they knew. I mean, certainly they had to have known something was going on, and yet they chose to suppress what they knew because they really didn't want to know. They just didn't want to know. Whether it's because, who knows why they didn't want to know. I could make a bunch of guesses. So they didn't know, but they knew. And what Paul is saying here in this, as we, as we look at this, he's saying people don't know because they don't want to know. They actually know, but they don't want to know, so they don't let themselves believe that. It's too uncomfortable the truth oftentimes is too uncomfortable. We started and waved our way into this last week. It's, it's uncomfortable. We don't like to be told what to do, and there's a reason why we don't like to be told what to do. But the truth oftentimes demands too much from us, so subconsciously we, tr- we choose, not to, choose not to know it. Verse 19 says this, because what may be known of God is is made known to them, or for what God, what can be known about God, it is plain, and this is important here, it's plain within them, because God has shown it to them. Kind of pointing to basically, God reveals it within us, and then he also reveals it to us. For, since the creation of the world has, for for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are, they are without excuse. So, we see here that, that creation bears witness, and it bears witness in a number of ways. We're going to look at four, kind of in a philosophical framework, we're going to look at four ways that creation reveals the, the depth and the beauty and the reality and the power and the glory of God. We're going to look at four different ways. I'll just tell you right up front. Like this, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable because um, I'm not a, like a science guy or a, it, this feels a little bit geeky to me. But I think it's really important, otherwise we wouldn't be spending our time on it, to look at these because I believe that some of the things that we're going to discuss here are the very roadblocks that keep people from considering the gospel. And so we want, to, we want to look at each of those. We're going to just take these four different arguments that prove the existence of a creator through his creation. So the first one is called the cosmological argument. And I guarantee you, I'm going to mess this up with cosmetology at some <laughs> point in time. I just will get tongue-tied, I guarantee it. But um, the cosmological argument... Um, this is the question why something is in existence. It, it tries to address the origins of something in the cosmos. How can, how can there be something from nothing? How is that possible? 
If the world began 10, 12, 14 billion years ago, like the Big Bang, where did the materials that caused the Big Bang come from? We could say we believe in the Big Bang, we just know who supplied the materials for the Big Bang from a Christian worldview. Now, you can kind of keep going backwards in, in this infinite progression, but it doesn't matter. You still have to come to some point in this cosmological argument that there was the presence of something, some kind of matter that created all of the everything that we know of today. Because nothingness just can't explode out of nothingness. It has to have something. So there's Richard Dawkins. Many of you may have heard of him. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. And in this book, um, he admits that there's a problem. And this is kind of what he says. He says, Darwin's theory works for biology, but not for cosmology or the ultimate origin. Cosmology is still waiting on its Darwin. So he admits, he admits here uh, that while he, he can explain how things took shape, he can't explain how the stuff got there for those things to take shape how those things were able to, to make that, make that jump. So that's the cosmological argument. What's the origin? There, there is not a, a, a viable option out there outside of our Genesis 1 account of the origins. So that's the cosmological. Cosmo now we go to the teleological argument. So the cosmological argument is the where did things come from? The teleological argument is, what is their purpose? And how do they all fit together? How do these things fit together? So um, this is interesting, really an interesting process. So the more and more we learn through science, um, the more and more amazing this argument becomes for the presence of and the, the evidence of our faith in Christ. And it affirms the the. the, the biblical account of, of creation. Um, so, with this, scientists say that life on earth depends on multiple factors. They are so precise that if they're even off by a hair, then life could not go on as we know it. It's called the Goldilocks principle. Things have to be just right. It's the Goldilocks principle. So, for example, I've got a, a stat here you can kind of look up. So, on this, um, on this stat, you'll notice on the left, it says life-sustaining makeup, and on the right, it says the lethal makeup. Life can be sustained with those fractions on the left, and it can be exploded or destroyed or would be destroyed on the right. Now, I'm not a math whiz, but those look pretty similar to me if I look at those, right? So what's the difference? What's the difference between life and no life? Well, it's just a fraction. So for example... Um, if some of those levels are just off by a little bit, if we look at the oxygen, if oxygen dropped by 6%, every single one of us would suffocate. If it rose by 4%, our planet would erupt into a giant fireball and we would all die. Or the CO2, really interesting, um, if it was just a little higher, they say 0.01% higher CO2, then the earth would be either become an oven or there would be no atmosphere at all and we would die. Or this, the, the water molecule, one of the more fascinating ones, it's actually the only molecule whose solid form, which is ice, is less dense than its liquid form, which means that when it freezes, it floats. 
If it was like every other molecule, it wouldn't float. It would sink to the bottom of the ocean, and then the ocean would eventually freeze from the bottom up, and we would all die. That's how that would work. Or the distance of the earth from the sun. If we were just 2% closer to the sun, the, the planet would be too hot for water and exist, and we would no longer exist. We would die. Um, now, and then there's the tilt of the earth. This one's really interesting, the tilt of the earth. It's at an ideal 23.5 percentage pitch. And if it's off just a minimal fraction, then that means the temperatures and the tides as we know them would work against one another uh, and there would be constant tsunamis and constant heat waves and we would all die as humans. So the last one, the fun fact I'll mention is that Scientists have learned that if Jupiter wasn't just the exact size that it is, and if it wasn't just in the perfect orbit that it is in, if it was just a little bit off, then we would be um, hit by 10,000 times the number of asteroid strikes here on Earth. And guess what? We would all die. Those kinds of things. So this is the teleological argument. It's, this is the idea that, um, first off, where did things come from? Where did that first material come from that started the Big Bang? There isn't any explanation for that. And the second one is, let's say we are, we are here, how do all of these things hold themselves together? You pull one thing out and everything kind of comes crumbling down. So, um, at this point, we can take off our telescopes and looking at the outer space and we can look at our microscopes and look at the DNA. This is the stuff that um, just blows my mind. So um, even the most basic DNA strand um, is incredibly, incredibly complex. Enough so that there's this scientist, Francis Collins, said this. He said, the head of the Human Genome Project, how could a cosmic accident ever result in something of this digital elegance, which is found in a DNA strand? And this Francis Collins, who is not a believer, he's an atheist, he says it would be like an ink factory, an ink factory, if there is such a thing, there probably is. If an ink factory exploded and all of the ink fell on the ground and fell perfectly in and encapsulated all the works of William Shakespeare, that's the likelihood of things working the way that they do based on DNA evidence. Um, what's important to know, all of, all of these things that we're mentioning, these aren't put together by Christian seminary graduate students. These are all put together by secular scientists. At least at one point they were secular scientists. Some still are. Um, Stephen Hawking, who's passed away here, what, this last year or so, he said this. He said, the law of science as we know them at present contain many precise ratios like the size of the electric charge, the electron, and the ratio of the masses of the proton and the electron. You got that? The, the remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very fine. The values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make it possible for the development of life. And then one of his colleagues went along to say, he said, the greatest miracle of all time without any close second is the existence of life on our planet. Now, we could just sit here and we could just say, well, we're just lucky. The universe as big as ours and a planet is the size of ours, um, it's bound to exist somewhere and we just got lucky for landing on it. 
We're just lucky. Well, if that's the case, scientists say, the likelihood of that happening, this just being a happen chance, is the same likelihood as if you were to pull a quarter out of your pocket and you were to stand here and flip it for 10 billion years without stopping, and it landed on heads every time, that's, that's the likelihood that things would happen the way they've currently happened now. point I'm trying to make here is that it takes an incredibly anti-God biased to take an approach of believing that this is all just happen chance. This all just happened. That's the point that these secular philosophers are making, and it's certainly the only viable option for this that we have is, is the intelligent design that came from our Father, which is laid out to us. Um, but, again, what's, what's the problem? There's an anti-God bias that's out in our culture today, and that anti-God bias um, is normally not coming from all of these evidences. It's normally coming from other areas where people have struggled with faith or struggled with people of faith, and so they take the evidence and they, they make it say what they want it to say because, because we know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. We know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. Thirdly, third one here is um, the argument of desire. So you've got the cosmological argument, where did stuff come from? You've got the teleologic argument, um, how do these things fit together? And then you've got the ar argument of desire, which basically says, where do longings come from? Like love, like meaning, like eternity. Where does that stuff come from? There is an atheist philosopher, his name is Albert Camus, and he said this, he said that we long for, quote-unquote, we long for love without separating, but yet the very same universe we live in is one without God and the conscious certainty of death without hope. He calls this the absurdity of life. We have this deep desire for love, but there is no God and so there is no hope, is his, his way. He calls this an absurd, tragic comedy. That the things that we seek, according to him, the things that we seek in life are things that we, in absolutely no way, can be provided to us from this life that we live. That's his perspective, maybe his anti-God bias. Now, you take a guy like C.S. Lewis, for example, was an atheist, became a believer, and he says something like this, in addressing the same issue. He says, a baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel des sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Let me ask you, which one do you prefer? Do you prefer our longings and our meanings and our desire for justice and eternity or a cruel, accidental joke that just happened? Um, or that there are whispers that we are created for another world? Maybe one that looks like a Genesis 1 picture, pre-the fall, pre-original sin. 
back in the year 2009, there was a famous uh, British journalist and biographer and atheist. Um, His name was A.N. Wilson. And he made this huge splash in his, his world because he became a Christian. And he said this. He said, in the Western world, we've been told that only stupid people believe in Christianity. But as a matter of fact, it's atheism that is a dry, lifeless creed and totally irrational. Atheism says that we're just a collection of chemicals. It has no answer whatsoever for the question of how this animated sack of accidental chemicals could be capable of love or capable of heroism or capable of poetry really closely tied with the desire piece is the fourth one here, the moral argument. The moral argument. This one's kind of fun. The the very fact that we have moral feelings suggests the presence of a divine lawgiver. In the same way that we feel guilt and moral obligation, this points to someone that has been created by a divine person. I wonder who that might be. Um, Someone that also we're going to be accountable for one day. Um, For those that say, well, not everybody has those feelings. That's true. Psychopaths do not have those same feelings, but that's a very small percentage of the population, so we won't go there. So feelings of guilt, feelings of moral obligation are common to to all people. Um, Common to all people, and guess what? Not just in Yakult, not just in Vancouver. Common to all people everywhere, all cultures. It crosses cultural divides. It crosses ages, this sense of, this sense of moral uh, duty. What I find interesting is that if you go into the animal kingdom, for example, um, if I look at my cats, uh, my cats will take a mouse in the yard and flap this mouse around while the mouse is crying for his life the whole time. And then after torturing it, it eats it. And I've never actually found my cat under a tree somewhere crying that he did that poor little thing, that poor little mouse. Never's done that. I don't know. Maybe I just have an insensitive cat. <laughs> Same thing with lions, though, right? A lion, if a lion devours a human being, it doesn't go off and cry about it. It's like, oh, I'm satisfied. That was nice. It's because they're, they're just doing what? They're living out of their nature. That is their nature. It's their nature to do those things. As it is our nature to desire love, to desire purpose, to desire meaning, to desire mission, those, those things. So, book of verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. We didn't want to embrace the truth about the all-glorious, all-powerful, all-ruling God. We didn't want it to be true because humanity, according to this passage of Scripture, wants to make the rules itself. And honestly, what it wants to do is it wants to take glory for itself. It wants to take glory away from God and put it towards ourselves. And, and that's what people do. That's what we do. We live our lives to direct attention towards me, towards I, whenever I do a wedding, I always bring up that Toby Keith song, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about I, you know, and that whole thing. It's because we're me monsters. We want, like, we want people to focus on us. And when we get tired of talking about ourselves, we want other people to talk about us. 
That's just kind of how people are. Now, maybe, maybe you are a little bit more socially um, astute than that, but that still kind of comes down to the heart of the way a lot of people are. We really do become uh, what, what is known by some theologians as plagiarizers. We're trying to plagiarize what God has provided, the work that God has done. You see, the reality is that every single gift that you have is not something that you've made. And many of us in here would be wildly successful in our fields. But do you realize that you would have none of that if God had not given? This is what God does. He gives. He gives. He gives gifts of administration. He gives these gifts out. It's up to us to develop them, but we do it because he gives us the opportunity to do it. It's a great thing. But, but instead, what, what humanity does is it tries to, tries to kind of bring it to itself. And then, and then it jumps over here. Jumps here, verses 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals, and creepy things. To sum all of this up, basically humanity suppresses truth, as Paul exclaims. And this suppression of truth generally manifests itself in two forms, in two ways. And, and the first one is the irreligious way. Irreligious, irreligious suppression is atheism. Now, what's interesting about this, um, a proper reading of this passage, going back to verse 19, as a, as a Bible-believing Christian, I know there is not such a thing as atheism. Atheism doesn't exist. Why is that? How could I be you know, so in, uh, insensitive to say that? It doesn't exist because Scripture tells us that, that the knowledge of God has been given and put in within all of mankind. We are made, all people, in the image of God. God has planted eternity inside of our hearts. But Romans 1.19 and following, it tells us there's not such a thing as atheism. Now I say that, I say that in a, in a church setting, um, and I say, okay, the worst thing that you could do now is go to your atheist friend and say, my pastor said there's not such a thing as you. That would be the wrong thing to say. And the reason why is because this, because people do truly believe. I believe there's people, I know people in my life, friends that truly believe that they're, that they're an atheist. They truly believe that. But, but more than what I believe their beliefs are, I believe what God says. And when God says that he has planted eternity in, in the hearts of mankind, when God has said that, that all people know him, but they suppress, they know, but they don't know because they don't want to know. That's, that's the truth that needs to become. So it's not that we need to be insensitive to, to atheists per se, but Romans is telling us that there really isn't such a thing as an atheist because God has manifest himself to all people in all kinds of different ways. And same thing happens. We, we know in our hearts, we know there's truth. But oftentimes we admit to ourselves that someone else has convinced us that there, there is no God. We don't like this thought of an all-powerful, all-ruling God because it would mean it would be something that we would have to change within our own lives. Now, the other example that kind of comes up is, okay, well, what about those, those lost tribes? What about those people? Well, there's a group of people that, that um, had no outside contact, um, the Aka Indians, who never had contact in their entire history with the outside world. And when they finally got contact, one of these, one of these Indians um, says, you may think we attacked and we brutalized our neighbors and it was because we were just ignorant, but we always knew, we always knew 
that what we were doing was wrong and it was even offensive to whatever God or gods were out there. See, it was the, but it's the beach ball thing, the suppression thing. You're pushing, pushing that beach ball down. We, we, we know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. It's that suppression of truth. So irreligious suppression takes its form in atheism. We see that in this passage. And then, and then the, I'm going to, I don't know if I have this, I'm going to jump back the slide real quick. And then the second one, actually I can go forward because it's there too. Yeah, there it is. Okay, two forms of suppressing the truth. There's the religious form of suppression. How do religious people suppress the truth? By making idols, crafting idols. We, we, we can change the object of our worship into something that we control. That's what an idol is. It's, it's something that exists to satisfy me. That's what idolatry is. We can think it's like in Bible times, it's a little, you know, a little Buddha statue or something like that or something physical. But we live in a, in a world where the, the theory that l- rules our day is secular humanism. And the, the key to that theory is that there might be a little G God out there, but I'm the big G God. My world revolves around myself. And you watch any, any, I don't watch Oprah, but any talk show or something like that. And you'll hear it. You've heard it. It's the theory that, you know what? Um, I'm just going to follow my heart. You got to make you happy. That's kind of like the popular theory of today. You got to live your best life. No, actually, that's not a biblical perspective. Because the only way I can, in a biblical framework, find my best life is when I find myself rooted in the person and the work of Jesus. That's, that's what that's what's, um, satisfaction, that's what I was created for, that's what you were created for. When we try to find any satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction outside of that relationship with God through Jesus, all that, re- all that leads us to is um, becoming an idol factory, trying to find something else to keep us happy. Another hobby that will distract us long enough until we get bored and have wasted all our money on it, and then we jump to another hobby and do the same thing over and over and over again. That's kind of like this, this process. And I, I don't speak from experience, so don't look at me like that. But um, the, the early astronomers, they, they looked at the Earth and they thought they were the center of the universe and everything revolved around them. That's what they thought. And that's not so different than our world today. And most of the hurt and most of the pain in all of life that we face in our relationships, um, privately and publicly, normally comes from that perspective. Normally comes from the perspective of, you know what, I'm really kind of fighting for the me in this process. And my world revolves around my desires. We see it in our prayers, God, I want this, God, I need this. God, that person's bugging me, you know, take them out for me, you know, these, these kind of things. It's, it's all focused on, on us. But the most basic truth here is that we were created for God. We were created for God, by God, for God's glory. And God is at the center. God's called to be at the center. But we wanted to be God who would serve us. We wanted to be our own, we wanted our own divine butler so we kind of can reimagine God. And that's what people have done in these days. They've reimagined God to be something that serves them rather than falling on their, own, their face and serving him. 
So where does that kind of leave us as we close out? Where does that leave us? Well, um, I just, I guess I want to say that there's only, there's only one difference between the irreligious, well, I wouldn't even say irreligious and religious. Uh, There's only one difference between a Christian and everybody else. And do you know what that difference is? Forgiveness. That's the only difference. Uh, most of the Christians I know aren't much better, more, you know, some of them are. They should be, but the, I know a lot of really good non-Christian people that are really moral people. The only difference between uh, a Christian and, a, and someone who's not a Christian is that a Christian admits that they're not the center of their universe, uh, that they admit that their, their fleshly desire is constantly wanting to take the magnifying glass and put it on themselves, but they come to church and they're reminded, no. The magnifying glass shouldn't be on me. It needs to be on God because God is the one that created me. God is the one that gave me these gifts. God is the one who's given me this life to enjoy and to love, and he's going to be the center of the universe. And, and, and a Christian admits that, seeks forgiveness, um, and asks for Christ to come into their life and to rule them. And as they go through life and they stumble over themselves like we do so good, we, again, we seek forgiveness for that as well. Um, so if you're here today, and if you're at all like the person that's sitting next to you, this, this, this me monster or this magnifying glass that we want to put on ourselves, um, there might need to, need to be some, some forgiveness seeking from, from the Lord or maybe even from somebody else. That might be important. And if you're here today and this is new to you and you just happened into, our, into the church here and, um, or you've kind of been just kind of wondering about this Jesus thing, that's really, the, that's really the difference. If you think coming to Jesus means that all of your problems in life are just going to go and melt away, that's the wrong approach. Um, because you're coming to Jesus so that Jesus can, can be your divine butler. And uh, not that he's not your best friend, but he's also your Lord. And he created you to worship, to bring glory not to yourself, but to him, because that's how we are designed to be. And when we walk in that and live in that, that's where, that's where true satisfaction, that's where true, true joy comes from. So if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, I just challenge you. In the quietness of your own heart, or if you'd like to talk to someone that brought you or talk to me, we'd love to share with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, because that's our whole purpose, to reach with the gospel, those who are near to us but far from Christ. And hey, you're here, so you're near to us, so we want to reach you. So... Um, with that said, I'd like the worship team to come up.